yo, what's good, Internet? Welcome to uh, episode 22 of Radio Harvester. Uh, I'm happy to have you here. The guest this month is my friend Mark Cross, a great guy, owns an art gallery and a tattoo shop. We talk about both in the interview. But uh, I don't know that we talk about either enough, and that's because this interview happened kind of spur of the moment, and I did not prepare for it at all. Um, my only preparation for it was uh, 10 years of friendship with Mark and uh, my complete and undying adoration of him as one of the kindest and best people I know. So there's that. Um, and I think that's enough, you know. Uh, we get into some light stuff, teen troublemaking, uh, the impulse to destroy, the impulse to create. We also talk about some heavy stuff like um, big, bad, scary health problems and um, sobriety and substance abuse and being addicts. And uh, I found it to be a really generative conversation. I've been thinking about it a lot since I got home from New York. And, uh, and I feel really good and I'm feeling really happy that I get to share this with the rest of you, you know, even if it's a little loose and rough around the edges, but that also seems appropriate. Um, so that's it. Here's Mark. Dig in. Enjoy. Ba, 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 ba. Let's do it. start at the beginning i guess you're from san francisco right yeah yeah you grew up in sf like in the city proper i grew up um in a small suburb of san francisco called foster city that was built on a landfill in like the <laughs> late 60s or early 70s or something it was just like a really shitty commuter t like cookie cutter commuter town yeah that was actually like pretty affluent for the most part um and I think when I was very young, my parents were pretty well off. Like we lived in a big house. My yeah. mom and dad both had like successful real estate careers. And then my dad sort of drank himself out of this marriage. And my mom was like a overworked single mom. Mm -hmm. You know, we found ourselves on the the bot the bottom end of that financial totem, you know. Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting um, place and time in my life, but uh, just found myself trying to get out of that space, right. out of that city at uh, any opportunity, and just like learned how to take the bus when I was very young. Yeah, totally. Sit on the. How I'll young are we talking when you say very young? <clears throat> oh, I don't know. It was probably like, fuck. I don't. I f felt like I was an adult, you know. Right. <laughs> looking back, I was probably like eleven or something. Sure. Twelve. You know, I, I don't know. Just like sitting on a Sam Trans bus, which was like a dollar or something like that, and took like three or four hours to get to San Francisco, oh, or um, and that's probably an exaggeration. It just felt like forever. Mm -hmm. But uh, or th the Caltrain, we like learned really quickly that if you laid down on the upper deck, the 
conductor couldn't see you and you could just ride for free or hide in the bathroom and mm -hmm. that was more of a straight shot but did like a lot of my growing up in San Francisco yeah but Foster City is an interesting town and I just recently just recently learned that one of my favorite movies was about Foster City it's called Over the Edge you know that movie oh, I know that it's movie. like Matt Damon's first yeah. film like an 80s coming-of-age movie that uh -huh. opens with a kid shooting at a cop car on a freeway overpass yeah great film and yeah, I always so identified with it and I was watching the director's commentary and he was from Foster City and wrote it about growing up there so if you that's wild I'd like to get a little window into what it's like to be a child in a shitty planned community mm -hmm. that was built on a landfill in the late 60s that's a great um, a great start yeah I feel like there's like a special kind of like California suburban desperation that's like a film genre you know what I mean like Repo Man and like right. Lost Boys almost right like doesn't right. Lost Boys take place they move to some yeah that's Santa Cruz yeah. yeah totally and it's about like the you know there's this like illusion of like prosperity in the west that everyone's going out to these suburbs and then like the in the 60s and 70s maybe and then in the 80s they started making all these films about like the dark underbelly well, of suburban America I mean the, I feel like it was not without like like Foster City as like an idea mm -hmm. was kind of awesome. Like growing up, there was a grocery store called Grocery Store, a pet <laughs> store called Pet Store, a video called Video, a video store called Video Store, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's insane. And like everything just kind of like looked the same. And like the developer Jack Foster built the city to vaguely resemble like a Venice. There's like a, these like sort of snaking like lagoons that. Uh -huh. Um, you know, it was beautiful. A lot of people had like waterfront property and like a little boat and then they would commute to work in San Francisco, um, come home to their beautiful suburban lives, living right. on the water or whatever, going to their local grocery store that's called grocery store. But like there was little to no thought of what a child uh, might do, what a kid might do, what a preteen might do right. there. They had like started when I was younger to like strictly enforce some kind of curfew whereby you weren't allowed to be outside after eight o'clock and like public transportation out of the city came like every hour like on a good day and like just really not at all most times and uh it was just kind of like a prison really yeah, for a young really kid there's nothing to do so we just caused we wreaked endless havoc you know that was just like um, what you do to pass time, which is interesting because, you know, Maggie, my wife, was yeah. like from Astoria and like went to high school in like Midtown Manhattan and just seemed like her childhood was just so much tamer than mine because she was like surrounded by all this chaos and like this like these like maybe perceived like threats or whatever. You're sure. sort of like forced into this kind of like routine or whatever that is maybe a little bit more tame and like when you're just like a kid with like there's like nothing this like endless amount of like whitewashed sort of safe like nonsense you you are the bad guy you know right. what I mean and like there's a power in that that is like exhilarating when you're a kid but it also um you know, I was smoking speed out of a light bulb when I was 13. Sure, yeah, <laughs> um, that's nuts. Like the... 
in Foster City or you'd go into Yeah, San yeah. We, I mean, we couldn't find beer to save our lives, but right. like, you know, my friend Clinton's mom down the street had a little secret stash or whatever. And like, we f- quickly figured out what that was. And yeah. had a babysitter that gave me weed when I was like 11 and um, was just like off to the races after I figured out that when you smoke drugs, you don't die instantly. Yeah. You know? Then it's like, well, let's. And I'm just wandering around at like sunrise after being up for two days and scared to death because I think a bush is a wolf. But <laughs> um, yeah, sure. that like imaginary wolf is like the greatest threat to my well-being. So I'm, right. there's not much of like a recourse for my my derelism. Yeah. But and I feel like destruction is like a really simple and like maybe it's more so for like people that are socialized as boys because of the way that we're raised or whatever but like destruction is a really impulsive and early outlet for creativity for a lot of people right where it's like something really beautiful in it yeah yeah and and also like there's like it's like about having an imagination where it's like thinking about options that don't aren't offered to you right yeah like living outside the box a little bit yeah totally yeah we used to take like great joy find great joy and like we would get these jones sodas that had just like come out when we were a kid and there was like photos on them and we thought it was cool we were trying to get our photo on the soda but we would uh just have these contests of who could throw the bottle farther and just like smash <laughs> our glass everywhere yeah. and we just had this like amassed this pile of glass at the end of some random street and yeah. that was just like an amazing pastime for us yeah, I used to like, I don't know how many smoke bombs I've put in a mailbox, you know what I mean, in my life, where it's like, it just, it, from age maybe 11 to 13, like that was the funnest thing. It was like, oh, if you put a smoke bomb in a mailbox, then right. a bunch of smoke comes out of the mailbox. It's crazy. <laughs> but then if you put a smoke bomb in a mailbox on drugs, it's like the whole, yeah, a whole another level. I had yeah. this neighbor, Rachel, um, who lived like, you know, like, I don't know, two doors down from me or whatever in this apartment complex where every apartment looked exactly the same mm-hmm. and the floor plan was exactly the same. And um, she lived in this two-story, two-bedroom apartment with her mom and her mom was obese um, to the extent that she like was bedridden. Uh-huh. And um, we just really took advantage of that and partied hard sure. in the downstairs and her mom you know, was like watching TV and if we just kept our noise under a certain decibel or whatever, she'd be none the wiser and we just like would just rage in this house in the suburbs and it was like really pretty dark, yeah, like looking wild. back, you know, but I don't know, I'm, sh- I'm sure that happens everywhere to some degree, but right. it certainly was like, I feel like a reaction to this sort of situation I found myself in as a as a kid and sure got out of as soon as I could you know yeah when did you start like painting and drawing and stuff um I don't know I guess I always did uh when my sister was born I was like two or three or something and I think um there's some sort of like psychological like shift that happened um, 
in me around that time. I'm sure mm -hmm. un unrelated to my sister being born, but like uh, just recently had this conversation with my mom where she explained to me that she had become aware that I was clinically depressed as like a three-year-old child and um, that's heavy that was like an interesting revelation to have in light of like recent events in my life but my my sister being born sort of added some like chaos to the situation and she was very attached to me and I was like finding myself needing more and more space and I, w I would just kind of like isolate in this room and like draw mm -hmm. and that was like um, this like space where I was allowed and like afforded this degree of um, just personal space and like an, an, an outlet to like do something that like took my mind off of like yeah. my mind you know yeah and, for sure uh, I just used to like trace a lot of stuff that I liked and I started drawing like bubbly letters and I thought that I was really good at that and uh -huh. play Nintendo I did a lot of playing Nintendo um, yeah, I was like seven, six, five, six, seven when I was like really drawing every day. Yeah. And then, um, I don't know, eventually found graffiti as like yeah. an outlet, which was not so dissimilar in that it's something that I could do by myself and afforded me this level of um, just like, Like this sort of private autonomy, this and like some time to just reflect, like this introspection, like walking around the city by myself, right? Doing this thing that people will later see, so I can like contribute to this sort of community somewhat, like, uh, but not actually like engage with it, you know, and still be this sort of like private ghost of a person mm -hmm. that I like really so desperately needed to be. Whoa. You That's know, wild because I like I don't I've known you for years now and I don't think of you like that at all at this uh, point. Yeah, you know, it doesn't I feel like I'm in a much different place. Yeah, in my for life sure. Now, yeah, but I was very like socially awkward. Suffered from a lot of social anxieties on mm -hmm. the board on like borderline agoraphobic even for wow. a long time. And just find myself very isolated a lot of the times and like sitting by yourself thinking about yourself sitting by yourself thinking about yourself yeah. et cetera, et cetera, can be maddening so like to have something to do that feels somewhat constructive like you're not totally just a waste of skin is like um pretty chill yeah like it gets you out of the house and it impacts other people in a way that's hopefully positive yeah and gets but you out like of your head yeah. and uh gets you into like a space that is communal, whether or not right. there's actual, like, face-to-face -face human interaction there, which there is sometimes, like, you can, you're sort of engaging in this call and response with this community, mm -hmm. but from, like, this place that is, like, comfortably separate. But, like, a lot of my friends were in bands, like, I just couldn't see myself, like, sitting on a stage like right. screaming into a microphone or whatever you know like personally I always like envied people's ability to like take that leap and like put themselves out there like that but it wasn't for me but like you know they would play their shows and I would go off and like paint my graffiti and right. uh, they would go on their tours and I would go on with them and just go off and paint yeah. graffiti it's like this is a good place to have a show it must be a good 
place to paint graffiti. <laughs> yeah, totally. Pretty symbiotic. What bands are we talking? Like this is bands from the Bay and the. Yeah, I just I had some friends that were in some bands that aren't like anything now, and most yeah. of them are dead. But just like. Uh, were they from Foster City also? Or are these? Like yeah, friends from actually, I had this friend Mac Mac Daniels. He was uh, in a band that I went on tour with called. Um, Betray the Species was the name. Cool. They, were, they were doing like kind of a crazy sort of like, I don't know, like techno, hardcore crossover type band. Okay. It was pretty interesting, but they, I did, I did, I like edited some sort of like a found footage video that synced up with their song that was like an hour long and I would just like set up two televisions and put in a VCR, VHS tape into the VCR and press play and that was my contribution to their project and then kind of you'd go wander around and paint or whatever it, yeah yeah um and did you when did you move to the city did you move to the city like as soon as you were old enough um well, i don't know that's like a tricky question because like i didn't have a house for <laughs> for a long time you know so like i sure i, I moved in to a house with my girlfriend a friend of mine was living in San Francisco. I had a girlfriend. We rented a room together, mm -hmm. and that was probably when I was like 19. But like, you know, before and after that relationship, I found myself just like on couches. Sure. And like, um, I never really like understood what sort of defines like the citizenship of a city you know yeah. like I would wander and I was very like vagabond at the time so I was kind of like in and out of San Francisco Portland Seattle just like up and down the west coast a lot um, I spent a lot of time in San Francisco and a lot of time in Seattle and I felt like a resident of both cities sure to, like the degree that most people never will not like you know not like you know trying to uh quantify people's like relationships with the, their their city or like um say that one person is more from san francisco than the other but like when you're out in the street like painting graffiti every single night climbing on buildings like uh -huh. you just find yourself in a more like intimate relationship with that city, like the physicality of that city, like you, I, like, you know, you start to learn every like nook and cranny, and um, right. you know, see the city from perspectives literally that not other people will ever see because you're in on some roof in the middle of the tenderloin that you know only a handful of people have ever been on, and it's just like uh, the same with Seattle or Portland, you know, just like very like intimately like lurking and exploring the crevices of a city you know totally. like I just felt like an intimate relationship with San Francisco since I was a little kid yeah in that regard how did you think of, like did you think of yourself as an artist when you were just like going mm, out painting every day I think I tried that on for size for yeah. a little while and it just never it felt like icky like um, oh, like as a graffiti writer no no like, no um, when you were painting, like first starting to paint, were you, was that like after the, like, there was starting to be graffiti in galleries and stuff? Like, I know about most of this stuff from a New York 
perspective more than San Francisco, but I remember the first time, like, uh, not to the extent that it is now. Yeah, it, I mean that shit was around since before I was born. But sure, yeah, I guess there was. Um, yeah, there was certainly that, or like definitely people who were involved in the graffiti sort of community or whatever, making art in galleries. But I think it was still very like frowned upon to like present graffiti as art right which frowned you know, upon by the art world or by other graffiti writers oh absolutely not frowned upon by the art world right. they want it you know i mean people people are just thirsty to like get their hands on like whatever sort of like counterculture they can mm-hmm. sink their teeth into you know and i think for that reason it was like this heavily guarded sort of secret you know but um there's been a few people who have like really crossed over and done it in a way that was like graceful and dignified yeah. and all that stuff. But I think that there certainly sh- was like a separation there. Like there's there's like a compartmentalization of graffiti and art and the people who do both that is like necessary and like attractive. Right. When did you start tattooing? Um, went to an art school for a little bit because <coughs> I thought that was something I should do. And um, in SF, yeah, I was like stealing art supplies and like selling them to the student body, and found that people who work at tattoo shops would also buy the art supplies that I was stealing. Um, and there's this one place that I frequented that would um, just trade me tattoos for uh-huh. art supplies. Sure. And I just kind of like was there a lot and then they needed a shop guy and I just like dropped out of school again to like work yeah. as a um, shop keep at a tattoo yeah. shop and um I never did any like formal kind of um apprenticeship uh but I was pretty it was pretty clear that I was like interested in what they were doing and uh-huh. I was very tactfully so like asking a lot of questions when it felt appropriate and you know people became more and more inclined to answer them they saw that I was like interested in like working really hard as a shop person like working hard for them and they would just um, kick me down a few pointers here and there just like answer whatever questions I had and slowly started tipping me out with tattoo supplies and and I had everything and went home and tattooed myself and they were very encouraging and yeah I had a lot of um shitty friends that were down to wear my shitty tats while yeah, I sorted course. it out and Man, like, f- fuck, if I didn't start doing that, I'd be in a totally different place in my life. I don't think there's anything else I could have done. Just, you know, like, I could travel and just be this kind of, like, derelict scumbag that I thought I was. Uh, right. And, like, do this thing and be, like, celebrated for all those things, you know? There's, like, this yeah. kind of, like, stupid, like... Um, I don't know, like glorification of the like derelict uh, renegade tat guy, you know, that's like um, 
like you can be that in right. that field and like you know show up to work hungover and talk about how you were like doing this and that last night and it's funny and not abhorrent you know I, I didn't get fired <laughs> for smelling bad on occasion right. or for like having spray paint all over my hands or being covered in tattoos and looking right. like a creep you know? yeah yeah, I remember you, you were tattooing me one time. It was right before my grandfather's funeral. And you were like, we were talking about funerals and like Jewish stuff. You did the tarot tattoo on my arm. Mm. And you were like, oh man, did I tell you about when I got that Hasid to tattoo me last week? <laughs> and you like told me this insane, you know, we're just like at work, whatever. And it's like, at like a fairly loud volume in your place of employment, you're telling <laughs> me about like doing a bunch of coke with some Hasids you met at a bar. And yeah. then they like let you put their clothes on. You like all went back <laughs> to your apartment. Yeah. And like, you know, it's like pretty, I, at the time I was like fucking wasted all the time. Or actually I had just quit drinking then. Um, I'd been, I quit drinking for a month and then I drank the day after my grandpa's funeral. But um, I, uh, you know, I spent most of my time working in bars and like, I also know, I don't have any, I've only ever worked in restaurants really or like as a bike messenger or whatever, like in things where you can be a dirtbag. And I uh, organized my whole life around my hangovers for years where I was like, I can't right. have a job that I have to be at before yep. noon. And honestly, I'd prefer to be at work at four if I had my druthers, you know? Right. Uh, and I definitely can't have a job that I can't like call out of at the last minute once or twice a month. Right. Because I'm sick. I definitely, you know, and it's like, Stuff like that, I feel like, yeah, tattooing is It's funny is how like, you can just make that work. I mean, certainly tattooing isn't the only option as evident in your list of uh, alternative employment agencies. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, like where would we... I, I don't know. It, it sort of forces you to get creative there. Like... To um, hustle, you know, um, yeah. outside of the against the grain a little bit, and um, I think it makes you a stronger person because of it. If you can come out the other end, you know. Yeah, I think so too. Which so few people do. And like we're kind of both at that age where people either like kept gunning for the cliff and drove off, or they like kind of veered left and are like living a slightly different lifestyle that was shaped by their sort of yeah. um, prepubescent derelism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big time. I like, how how long, I so I just, th you were just like some dirtbag friend of my dirtbag friends when we met that I knew tattooed and I knew you knew what you were doing because of that time when you fixed Amina's tattoo machine <laughs> when I was getting tattooed right. in her room. So that's when I met you. I think we had met briefly yeah. in New York before right. that. Um, but then, and so like the first two tattoos. That and that was like 10 years ago. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah, exactly 10 years ago, actually. Yeah. Um, I like never bothered to look at your work or like consider that you might be a tattoo artist that people in a tattoo world care about, you know? <laughs> I don't and think I was at the time. But no, not that. Yeah. Not like, I mean, not that degree. day in Amina's room and definitely right. not yet that day at your house when you did the Paul Clay thing on my right. arm. But like the, I remember going over to, you're working at East River when it was right off Greenpoint right. to get the, um, the tarot tattoo. 
What a beautiful shithole of a spot. That, that place is a, <laughs> that that particular store, but that place in general is just such a magical place. Yeah. But uh, you were like, yeah, I guess I'm like uh, the Sailor Jerry tattooer of the month or something. Like people are going ape shit. I don't know. I don't really get it, but it's cool. Oh yeah. And uh, and it was the first time I considered that you like had spent years building a craft that other right. people had noticed and you weren't just like I mean you're still just some dickhead that I know or whatever but like right that there was like some recognition in the outside world of your talent sure right other people are looking at my dickhead yeah exactly <laughs> and like it's still people like people look at see your tattoos on my arm on the street and are like oh my god did you get that from Mark Cross sometimes like in <laughs> Pittsburgh and I'm like that's so cool yeah it's totally cool and for a while I would be like oh my god yeah do you know him and they'd be like no do you and it, like <laughs> I started feeling like a jerk saying like I was doing a like a check out who I am with my important friends thing you know <laughs> so I just stopped I started being like yeah yeah cool yeah in New York yeah. um, but like it's crazy to think about how how like did that sneak up on you did or did you see it like did you watch that kind of um, notoriety form well yeah it's sort of like that sort of stuff just builds you know like uh you know somebody starts a new band and you're like this guy from this band or this right. this girl who was in this like thing in this band is now singing in this band and like you uh you know, I was like this guy who's doing these tattoos that used to do this graffiti and like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like this guy is doing this graffiti that used to like hang out with this band. You know, it just like, it was right. like a slow, just sort of build, you know, and I don't, I, I mean, I guess everybody wants recognition to some degree. Like, sure. Uh, yeah. Even when you don't want to be the person on stage or like be receiving that recognition when yeah. you're young. No, You're still outriding graffiti, right? But it, there was there was this anonymity there that was very comfortable. Right. That was kind of like, you know, present to a degree, like in tattooing. But like, you know, I have to, you know, when you're tattooing somebody, you obviously sit and like talk yeah. with them, and like I can deal with that. Like, I don't, I don't really put my face out there too much. Sure. Online and, you know. Um, tried to let my work speak enough yeah. for itself that it would attract people and I could continue to tattoo, you know, um, right. and make enough money to like n not be homeless anymore because I realized that that's really exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. And like started to afford myself a degree of comfort and, you know, I think I didn't really notice that it was like being like what I was doing was being seen as much as it was until I started seeing lots of people copying it, you know, uh -huh. and then um, that that was like a whole other beast of burden or whatever, just like it made me so mad at first. Sure. And like I worked so hard for this, like so hard for so long with like and took so many risks and chances to like come up with these sort of like aesthetic solutions to these problems I was encountering that would later define my style and like I don't know this is going off on a new tangent but like 
like I really would lose sleep over the fact that these people were just kind of like hitting the ground running with some shit that I, you know, worked really hard to like sure. build for myself. And like a lot of what I was doing was like really easy to copy, but like really hard to implement, you know, mm -hmm. and like, I don't know, I was talking to a friend, Tauba, she's like a really amazing artist and just a brilliant person. And like she was, I was like on a especially, um, I was on a hot one just like off this person in particular who had just like made a career out of plagiarizing me, you know, and just was going on this tangent about how this sort of like plagiarism is like the enemy of progress and all this stuff and I was just like really upset and like on my high horse like I was sort of defending the greater good or something yeah. by like speaking out against this person or whatever although I wasn't doing that publicly just kind right. of silently at night in my own head when nobody else could hear me <laughs> and it just kept me up <laughs> yeah. at night and did me no yeah, good totally. she basically just was like no I, I, I don't think that's true at all I think like the opposite is true and that like these people sort of force us out of our um, what's the word like like these these people there's always there's always going to be somebody that copies. That's what we do. You know, you right. sort of fake it till you make it. But like, um, it is a stark reminder, an unfortunate reminder. Of, well, it's an, an an important reminder of an unfortunate reality that like this sort of complacency will just render you useless. You know, you have to sort of just keep pushing forward. You know yeah. what I mean? And that these people sort of nipping at your heels never afford you the comfort of that complacency mm -hmm. like you don't just make something and like sit on this like throne of achievement uh and like um reel in the dough for the rest of your life you know if you're not constantly like fighting and moving forward then you just fall by the wayside and people sort of pass you over and it's just like that means taking risks which is extra frustrating when you've already got some sort of spotlight on you people right. see every sort of mistake that you make along the way and it, but uh it just means like that you can't rest you know what i mean you just yeah. have to keep keep going um and i don't know like like uh, that's true you know it's just it sucks because i want to just like have made this thing and just like do that forever and be done but um I don't know <laughs> yeah. how it got on that tangent. Yeah, no, I, I, it makes sense. And I, is that like, I mean, that seems to uh, like apply to a lot of stuff you do beyond just like your process as a tattoo artist. Right. Like, it seems like you don't, plagiarism or whatever aside, like you don't let yourself get comfortable and stagnant. Like right. the, your shop is doing really well you own a shop, Rose Tattoo on Graham Ave. Yeah. Go get tatted up, listeners. Best um, tattoo shop in the world. And, uh, yeah. But, like, some people that would be enough of right. an achievement, right? And they'd be like, cool, I own this successful tattoo shop. I'm going to just keep this thing going well, and that's it. That's all I need. But it's like you've got the successful tattoo shop and then you're like, well, let me reopen my art gallery <clears throat> slash weird stuff store. Right. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> Did, was Rose open yet when the first Mud Guts happened? The first Mud Guts closed 
that I turned in the keys the day that I got the keys for a rose. No shit. So but you were tattooing at East River. I was tattooing at a place called Greenpoint Tattoo. Oh, right. Yeah, while you moved doing over there. the Mudguts thing. And then found out, like, in the middle, like, right, bef- right before I went to sign the lease of the first Mudguts, had found out that... I was going to have a baby and that I needed to have open heart surgery. So it's like a very tumultuous, very full time. But, um, you know, I, that was fun. Uh, I couldn't be there for a lot of the second half of the one year that we had at that one space for the, the baby and the heart thing. But, um, yeah, you know, I think that like, this like insatiability that's always kind of like driven me to like do stuff or drives uh-huh. anybody to do stuff like has been a blessing and a curse you sure. know like it's never enough but like that's like uh, it's good to a certain degree I'm kind of like learning how to reel that in now and like uh, I just kind of felt like I had plateaued to a certain degree in my tattooing. I was at a point where I was like really burnt burnt out. And um, when the first mud guts happened, you're talking. Uh I I was like getting there when the first mud guts happened. And then I took a long break because of the heart surgery and the uh-huh. baby and I kind of came back at it full force and um found myself in a space like mentally where I just needed to like separate myself from work and just like figure out other aspects of my life that had been neglected because I like prided myself and the fact that I worked too much mm-hmm. but um I don't know this space sort of presented itself and um seemed like a refreshing change of pace to just sort of focus my energy somewhere else and try and um embrace this sort of thing that I could see maybe happening here? Yeah, because the first Mud Guts was pretty amazing. Like, it was a pretty cool space. It was fun. And yeah. you had all this wild shit there. Like, the parties there would, like, spill out into the street in this way that was, like... Yeah. That was another point where I was, like, oh, my friend Mark is doing really cool shit, where I was, like, <laughs> just, like, the... Um, the energy it takes to organize stuff like that and to like kind of rein in like well it takes a village like we had a lot of help there me and uh, I was working with Lele Mm -hmm. on that first space and he's just like an amazing like organizer just has a knack for just like building communities and just like leading projects and stuff and just together um it just it like a lot of people were just sort of drawn to what we were doing. Yeah. Space wasn't making any money, which is why spaces like that don't often happen. I learned, right. and I think people could see the like honesty in the, like there's no ulterior motives there. Mm-hmm. You know, like just trying to like build up a community and create some sort of like excitement around like um, a place, time. You know, like. Uh, I don't know, it was exhausting, but a lot of people got behind it and a lot of people contributed. And, like, again, nobody was making money. Everybody was working really hard on it. Right. You know, and, um, and just, like, working other jobs. Yeah. You know, I was tattooing. Um, 
Julian, uh, who works at Rose Tattoo now, is my uh, shop guy. Is like my right hand man, and yeah. my all my projects right now was like there five days a week, just working his ass off, like for nothing. You know, right. I was like tattooing him here and there, but like, you know, um, when people like believe in something, they tend to like want to work hard at like seeing that it does well you know and yeah um not all people have that work ethic you know sure it's not something that can be like taught or learned i feel like you just maybe you know i don't know yeah. uh but i was happy to take him on on paid position at rose when we open yeah for sure he's an angel uh, yeah he's a, he's the man yeah what a truly great person yeah just a good guy mm-hmm and there's a lot of good guys in my life, a lot of good girls and a lot of good people and like yeah. a lot of uh, positivity and creativity and um, through tattooing, I found myself in a position where I can sort of help facilitate the um, just uh, help nourish the growth of like some of these people doing some of these things that I really appreciate and Absolutely. Uh, can afford to like take some financial risk to like see that these things get out into the world with like little to no monetary gain you know just like this, so long as the space can pay for itself and like I'm I'm like excited to be working on these projects that are exciting with people who excite me and um, it's just like life is really can be really bleak and shitty and mundane and monotonous and overwhelming but like when you can like work with your friends on something that just for whatever reason feels good it just takes you out of yourself and out of this sort of like existential hole for a few minutes like that's chill (laughs) yeah absolutely the do you want to talk about sobriety stuff? Do you feel comfortable with that, or we don't need to? Yeah, that's fine. Um, I mean, were you? You talked about like we've talked about smoking speed out of a light bulb at thirteen, <laughs> yeah. and then we kind of just there's like the implication of like the presence of drug use in your life. Yeah, and then there's it was my best friend. <laughs> you had to get open heart surgery. Yeah, and like presumably so, those things are related to uh, some degree. I mean, I would. <laughs> say that like doing cocaine when you have like a weak heart or something is not like ideal yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah totally um but i my my heart was uh defect was congenital i was born ah. with it so like i don't think that you know um shooting heroin smoking speed smoking crack doing coke um etc for the last 20 years um helped matters much but um you know i didn't die which is like crazy i was like doing triple axles on thin ice you know unbeknownst to me yeah i would often be like high on cocaine uh six in the morning and telling my friends that my heart was doing something crazy but like i thought that that was like funny or whatever yeah totally you know but um yeah i don't know um yeah, so when did, did, were you already thinking about sobriety when you had your surgery or were you, was that, did that come after? I just like, 
I quit doing drugs like all the time. You know, it was really yeah. easy for me to like separate myself from that when I saw that it was becoming like more than I could handle uh -huh. when the like burdens outweighed the benefits. I would just stop, but it was like not starting again. That was like a problem for right. me. I found myself alone with myself, you know, yeah. and just like thinking like a lot, like just thinking myself into a weird hole. Um, into a corner in my mind that was not pleasant and I uh, just sort of yearned for this like r release this escape this vacation from like myself and um, yeah I mean I drank all the time for so many years of my life from when I was a teenager until my late 20s because I didn't want to be alone like I there was like a voice in my head constantly that I needed to get to shut up Right. And being wasted or so hungover I could barely move was the only way that that voice went away. Right. You know? It's funny how that becomes like comforting though, this like the, 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 the like physical pain of like a hangover or just like, just like putting your body through this like hell is just like, like I don't, it's somewhat cathartic sometimes like this like, I, I don't know. For me, it became this kind of like ritual, you know, no, this like endurance, yeah. you know, and like um, this this sort of triumph of body and mind, and I don't, just like fixing myself. Basically, I was medicating myself, right. you know, and like uh, it worked for a long time until yeah. it like didn't anymore, you know. And for me, that was like because I had a kid and like you can't yeah. be like junky dad, you know, or you can, but you right. can't be the kind of dad that I want to be. Um, if you're hungover or sick or whatever, and um, yeah, totally. I knew that I had to stop, and it was um, kind of scary to like not have this like the like prospect of just starting again someday. You mm -hmm. know, like I would quit for a few months and then like have some wine and then you know a couple beers and then <laughs> you know and like oh, I'm drinking a couple beers. I have a little cocaine. Yeah, like. Who doesn't have a little cocaine when they have a couple beers yeah, so that they can drink six that. or seven more and then you gotta do some more cocaine and you know um, that stuff is fun and it's like right. uh, but it's also it felt necessary and like to not have that to think in terms like to have the finality of just like I'm I can't do this anymore and like you know God bless anybody who's come to that conclusion without a like something like a, a child, you know, sure. like on their own, like for themselves. Like I just never had the the fortitude or the wherewithal to like do something like that for myself. I just had to. And like we get older and like a hangover isn't just like some funny thing that you have anymore. It's like s crushing. <laughs> yeah, like totally. physically and s mentally and emotionally, like just crushing. Like yeah. walking down the street to like maybe get a coffee or like a soda or something and just like praying for death with every step mm -hmm. just like feeling your heart beating and your stomach turning and the world spinning is just like something that I'm pretty excited to not have to experience ever again and I don't think that I got another one of those in me yeah but um yeah it's funny if I don't eat well for a day and like stay up too late and don't drink enough water and smoke too many cigarettes <laughs> I can like almost replicate right many parts of a hangover yeah yeah and I've yeah, done totally. it a few times like 
probably only done it four or five times in sobriety. On my 32nd birthday, yeah. I threw myself an insane party where like, I hired an Elvis impersonator to sing for me. <laughs> and uh, it was nuts. It was really good. And I smoked a lot of cigarettes. I didn't really eat. And then I went home, and this person had given me like a two-pound bag of M &M, peanut M&Ms. And I went home, and I smoked a pack of cigarettes and ate peanut M&Ms in bed. Oh, yeah. It felt great. <laughs> I mean, an old therapist said to me, you got to touch the void somehow. Right. You know, I can't do it anymore with Whoa. drugs. <laughs> but uh, I can do it with peanut M&Ms. And, uh, and I woke up the next day, and I was nauseous. And I was like, my head hurt in that way where it's like, um, like a halo of pain around like the outside of your skull that is very specific to a hangover for me. <laughs> and like my mouth was dry in this oh, really particular yeah. way, you know? And I was like, and I realized, A, I realized how much of my, I mean, obviously fucking drinking 13 King Cobra tall cans in a night or like <laughs> doing 10 Jaeger shots or whatever and then lines off the bar and then whatever. Like obviously that's contributing to my body feeling like shit. But I realized how much of it was just how bad I took care of myself back then. You know what I mean? Like right. never drinking water. Right. Who needs it? Yeah. No, <laughs> I didn't. Smoking two packs of cigarettes a day or I whatever. I still forget to drink water, which is like so stupid. Dude, me too. I'm like so thirsty right now. Virtually free, you uh -huh. know, uh, readily available. I can certainly afford to buy water if I'm not near a sink where I can drink it for free. And <laughs> yeah. It makes you feel so much better when you drink yeah. water. Uh, I just don't do it. Ever. Yeah. I need um, to start. Yeah, and not to... Um, far be it for me to break uh, anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think... I was off booze for years before I ever went to a meeting. Right. of the anonymous uh, variety variety of a 12-step yeah. program. Yeah. And I still, I've been going to meetings for a year and a half, two years now, and I still haven't worked all the steps. Yeah. Um, I'm into it. I like the idea of it. But I like the, like, uh, the social aspect of it a lot. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I went to a 12-step meeting out of just total desperation and at the encouragement of a friend who had been going to such a meeting who since got strung out on heroin again and um, I don't know if that's working out for them or not but more power sure. to them but yeah. uh, I found it incredibly odd and like mm -hmm. kind of terrifying and oh, yeah. um, just just very alien to anything that I had ever experienced before or since but you're absolutely right with respects to the sort of like community that it afforded me just like hanging out like not many people smoked speed out of a light bulb when they were 11 and like are chilling now you know so it's just <laughs> yeah, like totally. um, those are my people that are at those things mm -hmm. like I don't agree with a lot of the literature the politics it's an incredibly sexist and uh just a uh, spiritually biased uh, sure. organization that shall remain anonymous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I haven't found another place where I can show up and be around a lot of people who 
have like been through the ringer and made it out the other side at the level that I've like found at some of these places, some of them um, more than others, and I just go to those places on occasion. Yeah. But uh, all of the the dog, I mean, it, it it's not without its bullshit, just like anything else. Yeah, nothing you can is. Take it or leave it. Um, I kind of avoid a lot of the. There's a lot of aspects of such a 12-step organization that mm -hmm. I find disagreeable, and I just don't participate in them. And yeah, I think that's the nature of it, though, right? Because like, as much <coughs> as it sucks to be doctrinaire about it, part of the doctrine is take what you need and leave the rest or whatever. So right, it's like right. That they say sort of like, yeah. it's like very patronizing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but um, I don't have the time or the energy or the desire to create my own um, sort of global f uh, <laughs> community of derelicts that um, I'm happy to just like leech off of that one yeah. when I can, when I yeah, can. Yeah, totally. But you know, maybe you know th that's not out of the question. You know, we we got this space now. I want to do some things here. I was talking about just having a little get together that doesn't necessarily have to pertain, pertain to drugs, but you know, touching the void, as you so eloquently put it, we can yeah. all just t talk about the void because you don't have to take drugs to, you know, dr drugs are a symptom of a greater disease for me and that disease really is just being consciousness, you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. it is, it's a uh, insufferable disease with, uh, you know, no known cure aside from death or uh, Klonopin. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm not ready for either. Yeah, it's funny because in my sobriety, in my recovery from a life of uh, drug-riddled decrepitude, I've discovered that I was suffering pretty intensely from um, a life long depression and anxiety disorder, which yeah. I've been now treating under the close supervision of a doctor with um, drugs. So yeah. I had to get off drugs to get on drugs, and I take drugs every day now. I don't get high off of them, I just get uncrazy. Right. And um, I'm not so much of an enemy to myself as I once was. I don't find myself at the end of the day just like thinking about things that are irrelevant, that I can't change, that just drive me nuts. and. Uh, yeah, uh, turns out the absence of drugs in my left life left a uh, Zoloft-sized hole <laughs> in my soul that I've filled rigorously. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just I don't know. I think all the time about like this notion that. Uh, like the kind of ties between, I think especially in our community of like punks or whatever you want to name it, um, counterculture, like American counterculture specifically. Yeah, there's this the against the grainers. <laughs> yeah, and there's this link between like uh, being sad, being being fucked up, getting fucked up, and right. making like creative production. Sure, I think that there's like, yeah, there's definitely something there. Um, I think that there's a certain wokeness that um, many of us share that um, 
you know, that this kind of like recognition of just the, the absurdity, the depravity of this sort of disease of consciousness, if right. you will, of being, of being a human, or just just being, like, uh, that's like insufferable at times, and it's just, it doesn't make any fucking sense, and like, we've sort of cultivated these, like, formalities and ethics and, like, social sort of uh, parameters that allow us to feel like we're doing what we're supposed to be doing and like fulfilling some sort of like destiny or like legacy or whatever when really none of it fucking matters and like in a hundred years we're all going to be dead and there's going to be brand new people that think right. that they're you know god's gift or whatever and in uh, the grander scheme of things we're all just a fart in the breeze and you know <laughs> it doesn't fucking matter <laughs> yeah. but like it feels like it matters and like um it's fucking heavy like if yeah. you think about it too much and you just like there's not much you can do but die or like uh just keep your mind fucking busy with right. like projects you know yeah for sure um, that serve little to no purpose but to like distract you from that the severity of the that the condition that we're all suffering from yeah that's very real i read an article that was talking about this like They've like isolated some specific protein that's responsible for like um, memory, essentially, and less consciousness. Like this, this, this protein kind of um, encapsulates this like information in this viral like husk before it like transmits it in the brain to mm -hmm. like preserve things like memory. That allow us afford us things like consciousness like we can't yeah. recognize that we are unless we can remember that we are you know right. but um the inference whether intended or not that i'd got from the article was that there is in fact evidence that like this thing that we recognize as consciousness is just the symptom of like an actual disease that may have infected a virus that infected some sort of creature however many millions of years ago and like there is no us essentially right. you know like how much of our bodies are comprised of like independent organisms like fulfilling their own sort of perceived yeah like, like gut flora and shit like yeah that. yeah like totally 70 80 percent of our entire mass is like these sort of organisms that are like have their own agendas and lives or whatever that huh. means you know it's yeah. just like we are because we can remember that we are we assume that that means that we even exist uh, but if you ask me it's all just a symptom of the disease <laughs> this viral infection that some poor thing suffered from that compels us to continue on and breed. There's something called toxoplasmosis. The cat disease? The cat disease. Yeah. The people that are infected with this disease, uh, including mice, are like compelled to be around cats to the extent as a fr fr for a mouse that they are eaten, you know. Right. Um, I had a girlfriend in high school whose mom had 20 cats and I thought it was like really sweet that she like had this love for these cats and my girlfriend hated it and she is the one that eventually discovered and explained to me this disease toxoplasmosis yeah. like this woman didn't
think that she had a disease when she was feeding all of her cats. She loved her fucking cats. Right. But sure. she was sick. Yeah. And she just needed to be around these cats so that this virus inside of her could uh, get inside of their shit. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> That's um, insane. Yeah. So if I don't do stuff personally, right. yeah. I think about that and it's pretty bleak. Um, but it doesn't have to be. Right. It's kind of refreshing, really, when like you're f- you're in the midst of a perceived sort of a problem or just um, you're in the midst of some sort of crisis. You're just like, well, you know, I'm just uh, this thing. I'm just mm-hmm. this viral blob, this wretched uh, yeah. flesh formation. And kind of like look up at the sky and just consider the vastness that we'll never even be able to comprehend. And, uh, you know, it just makes these things feel small. It helps me get outside of myself uh-huh. and like recognize that I don't even actually exist. <laughs> myself yeah okay listen um for real for real thank you so much so many thanks are in order thank you to mark for doing the interview with me at the last minute and for giving me a lot of tattoos and for being a kind friend and for breaking those oogles out that got bricked up in their squat that one time we didn't tell that story but he's really a mensch mark is a mensch um, sorry again to everybody for um, not preparing better for this interview with this great person, but I think it was okay. And sorry also for placing the mic in the middle of Mark's beard. That's why there was a bunch of staticky sounds that I couldn't get rid of. It's not that my recorder is broken, which is what I thought. It's that I put Mark's mic in the middle of his beard, and then all he could... Anytime he moved his head, there was just bristly beard hairs rubbing against the tiny microphone. And so it made bad sounds. And I need you guys to forgive me for that, alright? None of us are perfect. What have you done lately that... You're not perfect. Get off my... You know what I mean? I don't know why you're you're all on top of me like this. Anyway, uh, now that we've gotten through that, we've gotten through it all together, and I appreciate you all. Um, I also want to continue thanking people. I want to thank... La Cara Occulta for writing the theme music. As always, I want to thank Flasher for writing this song that's on right now, Erase Myself. It's on their first EP. They have a new LP out. They're a very good band. And um, coincidentally, right after we did this interview, Mark went and saw Flasher at, um, I don't remember where, but somewhere, opening for the Breeders, who they were just on tour with. What a dream. Um, 
what great people. Uh, so many great people involved in everything, you know? There's great people all over the world. Thank you as well to my girlfriend, because I'm feeling tender and I'm in love with her. Becca Giordano, you're the greatest. You're so smart and cool. Um, yeah, and no thanks to um, the cops, to the president, to the cabinet, to the Supreme Court, to fucking ICE. Uh, fuck the state of Israel. Fuck Billy Joel. Fuck your negative attitude. We are the punks. No cops, no creeps. Peace in the pizzeria. Harvester out.